You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. please turn with me to uh, the last chapter of Colossians, find your way to the end of the epistle. And since this is such a long text, I won't make you stand again. Colossians 4, starting at uh, verse 7 to the end of the book. Tychicus will tell you about all of my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have, become, they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. We've come to the end of the letter. Uh, It's been a wonderful journey alongside the, uh, the deacons and servants in this church. Thank you, Joe Ranch and Mason Uren and... uh, Daniel Law for uh, joining me on this trip uh, through Colossians as we have sought to lay it out. Uh, Now, we've come to the end of the letter and we encounter the more sort of letter features of of this document here. And the reason I had uh, that text from 2 Kings read, I just wanted you to know that letters don't always bring... Uh, praise and thanksgiving. They sometimes bring calamity. They've been used in various nefarious ways like Sennacherib did. And uh, uh, you notice what Hezekiah did with that letter. He just laid it out in front of God and said, you've got to be the one to defend us. But so uh, letters are used a lot in the Bible. You can find in every book of the Bible, you can find usually a letter, even the book of Acts and Book of Revelation have letters in them. And it's remarkable that at least 20 of the 27 books of the New Testament are letters. They reveal God's plan for the early church because in them we see a network of relationships between believers scattered far and wide. And while the letters in the New Testament are meant by God for all people, Throughout the church age, they were, at the time they were written, documents meant for a specific purpose, for a specific group of people. Now, as Paul would later write to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, Paul meant the Old Testament when he said all Scripture or every Scripture. But even in his day, Christians knew Paul's letters as Scripture. Uh, 
as we saw in our other text that, uh, uh, that Jerry read for us this morning in 2 Peter 3, verses four, uh, 14 through 18. And uh, even Peter, who was Jesus' best friend, said there are things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Uh, <clears throat> Amen, brother, preach it, uh, is what I would say to Peter. My goodness. And it's very interesting as well that inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul didn't simply write a Christian theology book for our instruction. He wrote letters. He wrote to deal with specific problems in particular groups of people. And his letter writing was rooted in those personal relationships. All those greetings at the end are about personal relationships uh, to the people to whom he wrote. And it's interesting that Paul sent letters which often in their closing verses mention so many different people. Now, I think we tend to skip over those passages quite a bit, don't we? We get to the end and the greetings, and I can't pronounce those names, so let me turn to the next book. Right? Uh, <laughs> and, and I've never heard anyone giving their testimony in which they say, I woke up, I, was at, I had to hit rock bottom, I, I pulled that Gideon Bible off of the hotel uh, nightstand and opened up to Colossians chapter 4 verses 7 through 18 and gave my life to Christ. You just never find somebody saying that. Uh, but they are still part of the inspired word of God. So uh, I, I find it refreshing that at this church we take seriously all scripture. So uh, I, I know you're wondering how we're going to get anything out of this, but we will. Uh, <clears throat> Paul did his work as part of a team of people who had committed their lives to the gospel. And Paul even regarded his letter writing as authoritative, an authoritative act in which he instructed churches about God's will. In fact, we can be grateful to God that Paul was prevented from going to Colossae and other places because it meant he had to write letters which in turn became part of our Bible. I think Paul would more, uh, more likely have preferred to be face-to-face -face with people and to teach them. Uh, and in very, that's why he spent all, almost his whole life after coming to Christ journeying here and there to, uh, to give the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to different groups of people. No, but I thought you'd like to know something about uh, letters in Paul's day. It was common practice in Paul's day for people, even if they could read and write themselves, to use a secretary who was skilled in writing to do the physical work of the writing. Because uh, writing is very difficult uh, to do well with dipping a pen in ink. If you've ever tried to do it, uh, you've probably encountered that yourself. And especially on papyrus, where the fibers run this direction on the front of the page, in this direction on the, on the other side, uh, it can be sometimes difficult to write because the, uh, the uh, ink tends to run along the fibers. This is why they were written typically on scrolls if they weren't short, and they had to be rolled up. So you have to have somebody who has the physical skill to do the writing. In fact, there are at least seven of Paul's letters which explicitly indicate the use of a secretary. If, you're, if you uh, pick up Romans 16, for instance, and you're reading in the greetings in the back, Tertius, uh, in chapter 16, verse 22 of, of Romans, says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, someone employed in this way then needed a, a set of important skills, which included uh, preparing the papyrus, making the ink, uh, even preparing a scroll, trimming pen tips, among other things, not to mention just the calligraphic elements of actually writing. Now, Colossians 1.1 mentions Timothy as a co-author, and it's he who probably acted as Paul's secretary for this letter. Now, um, in your bulletin, uh, I, I've, I've asked them to put uh, a somewhat of a little biographical sketch of each of the people mentioned in Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Actually, the, the title isn't actually correct because Timothy isn't mentioned in this passage, but I put him in here for good measure. So uh, I needed a dozen people here. So there we go. There are a dozen people mentioned in here, not to, not to mention the people whose names we don't know, like the, the church at Laodicea, when, 
We only know Nympha's name there. But anyway, uh, just so you can keep all these folks straight, there, there they are. Uh, I'm sorry if you, if you intended to write your notes for the sermon in the, in the, in the bulletin. You'll have to find some other way of doing it. But uh, uh, <clears throat> now it's common practice once a letter was written for the author to add something in his own handwriting. And we see that at the very end in verse 18. Now, the secretary or author made a copy to keep for him or herself for safekeeping in case the letter were lost in transit, which actually often happened. The original then would go on, hopefully, to its destination with the addressees on the outside of a folded sheet of papyrus, if it was a short letter like Philemon, or on the outside of a scroll if it were a longer letter. And, of course, most of Paul's letters were much longer than the average letter from the ancient world. They, were, they would be uh, written on multiple sheets whose uh, then edges were, were glued together and then rolled up in a scroll. Once rolled or fold, uh, folded or rolled, they would be tied with a string and then sealed with clay over the knot, or perhaps wax, I, I would imagine, as well. But my sources said clay specifically, and I thought... That's interesting, not wax. You know, that's the mental picture I have because we all think of 19th century letters with that you know, red wax blob and the stamp plugged into it. But if there is a signet or stamp, then it would be pushed into the clay. And you might be surprised to learn that there was no secure postal service for private individuals in the Roman world. For the empire, yes. For imperial business, certainly. You could hire somebody to carry a letter, but that would have been very cost prohibitive because you're talking travel costs here. If people can walk an average of 20 to 25 miles a day or something like that, if they're in really good shape, it would have been very expensive. So the most reliable way to convey messages was by using a trusted friend or family member. That way you could make sure that the contents of the letter would arrive secure. And travel was difficult, mostly on foot, and very often dangerous because of bad conditions or of criminals. Uh, you can read about that in 2 Corinthians 11 and uh, Philippians 2. They have notes along those lines as well. So Paul would have had to entrust confidential and sensitive information about his situation and plans to these messengers. So carrying Paul's letters then was a delicate and dangerous ministry. For the audience, hearing the greetings in our passage would bring a combination of relief and encouragement because the church at Colossae had met the people who sent their greetings, like Epaphras, they knew them, and they knew him very well. Or at least they knew about these people. And they would take encouragement from hearing that their faraway friends were doing well in the Lord's service. And so we, uh, we look at verses 7 through 9, and we find encouragement from a report in verses 7 through 9. The greetings and reports we have in verses 7 through 9 about Paul's life and ministry glorify God. You see, by bearing witness to what God is doing in Paul's situation. And these reports also glorify God by encouraging believers to consider how God is working in their own lives. So when you read these end-of-letter Greetings. Imagine the, the people and the, the love that's, that's flowing between them um, that, uh, that would bring a, a sense of uh, emotional connection to the, to the folks involved. So one purpose of verses 7 through 9 is to commend the messengers who bring the letter to Colossae. Listen to verse four, uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant. Now, you read servant there. It's, that's the word slave. Remember, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, about bond servants, that word slave there. He's a fe fellow slave in the Lord. Now, I'm, I'm making an issue of that because Onesimus isn't called a slave in the, in the next uh, verses. See, Tychicus, now you can find him, he's, the, the, uh, the list, hopefully I managed to put everything in a, in a sort of more or less um, 
alphabetical list. So if you find Tychicus toward the, at the bottom of the list there, you can see the other passages in which he is mentioned. He was a Gentile Christian from Roman Asia and one of Paul's trusted travel companions and messengers. Paul describes him here almost the same way as he does in Ephesians. Ephesians 6.21, it says, So that you may know how I am doing, uh, how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. So Tychicus is the, uh, is the guy who's carrying Ephesians as well. Paul had to trust God with his messenger letter carriers. So he describes each of these folks as faithful, reliable people. They were courageous in undertaking travel and gifted communicators since they might be uh, asked uh, to explain what Paul meant. And they had to bring reports about Paul's work. So he had to really trust these people he would send uh, uh, with, with letters. And the report itself in verse 8 has a purpose. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. There's two of them here. That you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So the Colossians are to get knowledge and encouragement from Tychicus. They will be able to take an example from Paul in how he deals with the day-to-day aspects of life in prison, uh, remaining steadfast for the glory of God in the gospel. There will be additional encouragement to them in knowing that how their prayers for, uh, as he puts it in verse two, verses 2 and 3, an open door for the word are already being answered. Now we move to verse 9. And, and uh, the, he's continuing this sentence. So he says, And with him, that is, with Tychicus, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, Onesimus, we learn from Paul's letter to Philemon, which we're going to study next week. Colossians and Philemon really kind of belong together because they're part of the same set of correspondence. And, and maybe we should move on to Ephesians after that. Uh, you'll see why I would say that here. But uh, uh, we're going to study Philemon next week. Uh, Onesimus was a slave from Colossae who had probably run away from the household of Philemon. But notice how Paul talks about him. He says he's our faithful and beloved brother. See, and in light of... Paul's teaching about the unity of all believers in Christ, Paul reminds them, too, that Onesimus is one of you. That is, he's from this group of believers in Colossae. Now, those facts are important because they'll help make a way for reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon. No reference to their rift is made here, though, and Paul doesn't mention Onesimus as a slave. As I, as I pointed out. So this note about encouragement tells us what you probably already know. We can be stirred to greater faith and devotion by hearing what God has done in the lives of other believers. Reports from friends, missionary prayer letters, or biographies of great Christians could help us. And we can thank God for His glory being manifested in others' lives as we see how their hope is rooted in God's grace. Now, Paul thinks it important enough to send two messengers, probably for security and help on the road, too, with this letter, to tell the Colossians about the situation. I, I would probably say it would be dangerous to travel by yourself at this time, so there's probably a number of different reasons he would send two messengers. But we can see that Paul values the readers knowing about his situation. He thinks it's just as important as the, as the message that he's already written. He wants them to see how his example can help them trust God the way he does. So that's uh, verses uh, uh, 7 through 9. We come to verse, verses 10 through 14, and we find special greetings from friends. So in this section, we move from the commendation of two messengers carrying the letter to the commendation and greeting of several friends of the Colossian church. 
This commendation of Christian service also glorifies God by encouraging those serving and by giving an example to other believers. Now look at verses uh, 10 and 11 here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, we could say, greets you as well. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. There's three men who are singled out here as Jewish believers. They're said to be of the circumcision, and that's, that's going to be paired up with three believers who evidently are not of the circumcision, then Gentiles. So we've got three Jews here. Well, we'll find three Gentiles in the next section. So there's three of them here, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus' justice. At a moment when a lot of opposition was coming against the Colossians from Jewish people, it must have been encouraging to see that there were other people of the circumcision who had believed in Christ and who were following him. So Aristarchus, uh, he's at the top, well, he's close to the top of the list there. Archippus just barely wins out because of the spelling of his name. Aristarchus here, a Macedonian Jew, appears in Acts chapters 19, 20, chapters 19, <coughs> excuse me, 20 and 27 as a traveling companion of Paul. Now, Aristarchus receives an additional description as my fellow prisoner. Now, the Greek word is soon eichmalotos, and the word means fellow prisoner of war. Okay, that's, that's all together, a fellow prisoner. It's a fellow prisoner of war, really. And it only appears in the New Testament in Paul's writings, and it only appears three times. Uh, and we're going to see the other guy uh, who is named this way in Philemon. Uh, it's Epaphras, and it's um, Andronicus and Junia in the tail end of Romans who are named this way. So it's difficult to say for sure what this word means, but fellow prisoner of war may indicate, may indicate that Aristarchus currently shared Paul's imprisonment, or it may mean that Aristarchus had been imprisoned for the cause of Christ at some point in the past. So we're not entirely sure whether Aristarchus has somehow been roped into his imprisonment. It could mean that he's decided to like, just be with Paul and, and serve him in a way that would, might expose him to danger as well. That could be the case of Epaphras, who is also called this uh, fellow prisoner of war. But at any rate, Aristarchus shared Paul's commitment to the gospel and the suffering that it came with it. That's at least what we can say, is that he was a man who was fully committed to, to the gospel ministry the way Paul was, and he was willing to endure suffering uh, alongside him. So the comfort that these men gave Paul came from their sharing his experience and their tireless work for him carrying messages, teaching, preaching, preaching the gospel, and a host of other hard work that probably went into helping Paul in this. So uh, in verse 10, uh, we go back to verse 10 for a moment. Uh, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Mark, this fellow who appears in verse 10, is also known as John Mark, and uh, he's so-called in Acts 12.12, 12, John Mark. Uh, he was best known for being the author of the gospel according to Mark. I find it interesting that, that two out of the four gospel writers get mentioned in this passage as having a connection to Paul. I think that's, that's just fascinating. Uh, <clears throat> now, Mark's family in Jerusalem had a prominent role in Jesus' ministry and in the church that formed there, Paul adds that Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. Now, Barnabas, I have, to, I have to step off onto Barnabas for a moment here before we come back to Mark. Barnabas, uh, after Paul's conversion to Christ, Barnabas was one of his first friends among the Christians. 
I mean, he's a guy who, here's a guy who is approaching a man who had uh, been up till now killing Christians and imprisoning them. And here's Barnabas who reaches out to him with his courage. Acts 9.37 tells us he brought Paul to the apostles and told them how God was acting through Paul. And so Barnabas, along with Mark, went with Paul on what we know as the first missionary journey that's in Acts 13 and 14. But along the way, a problem cast a shadow on their relationship with Paul. Uh, in, in Luke's words, Mark deserted Paul's ministry, tra- ministry team in Pamphylia. That's in Asia Minor. And so Paul no longer trusted Mark, and this led to a rift between Paul and Barnabas. The result was that Barnabas took Mark and went one direction, and Paul took another believer, Silas, and went off on another direction on what we call the second missionary journey. And the years went by, perhaps even more than a decade went by, and we don't know how or when, but by the time Paul writes Colossians, the rift has been healed. And now he asks this special request of the church at Colossae. Look at the latter half of verse 10 again. Concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. That's talking about Mark. This reconciliation between Paul and Mark See, makes us ask ourselves how we might imitate Paul's example. Their receiving Mark shows grace in action. Now, verse 11, and Jesus, who is called Justice, greets you. We know nothing more about this third Jewish man other than his name, Jesus Justice. Of course, Jesus is a popular name. Lots of people running around in, uh, uh, in the Greco-Roman world of Jewish background named Yeshua. Uh, The name Justice was probably a Roman name he adopted for himself because Jewish people often adopted Roman names to fit into the surrounding culture. That's also the case with Johann, Johannun, Marcus. Marcus is a Roman name. And Paul's name is not Paul either, by the way. His name is Saul, and Paulus is a Roman name. Uh, So uh, here we have a lot of people who have have sort of fit into the culture and are contextualizing the gospel for the culture in which they live. So now Paul talks about all three of these dear believers as, at the end of uh, verse 11, my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Paul's bond with them has been forged in shared suffering and shared work. They are fellow prisoners, fellow workers, and a comfort to him. What kind of friend does God want us to be? We think again of the integrity and faithfulness of the, of the messengers Paul entrusted with his letters. Those are the kinds of friends that we should be to our Christian brothers and sisters. We saw now three Christian, uh, Jewish Christian ministers in verses 10 and 11. Verses 12 through 14 detail three Gentile servants of God. And the first of these is Epaphras, whom we've met before. Verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant, again, slave of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. You remember that Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis are a, a, a triangle of cities uh, in inland, what would be, we'd call it Turkey today. It's in Roman Asia Minor. Epaphras has already appeared as the one who r- reported the spiritual health and hardships of the Colossian church to Paul. He had also been a teacher in Colossae before his departure to Rome to be uh, with Paul and serve alongside him. He perhaps might have even planted the church in Colossae. We don't know. But the first thing Paul notes is that he is one of you, the same way he did with Onesimus. This note surely strengthens the bond between the church in Colossae and Paul and his ministry team. And Epaphras is also a slave of Christ Jesus. This is a reminder that Epaphras is not working for himself, and he's not working for people. His life belongs to Jesus. And this commendation of Epaphras also holds him up as an example for the church, too. 
Now, we can see why he would be an example. Do you see what he does? He says, Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. The word always denotes his consistent, persistent labor of prayer. He regularly spends his time interceding for the Colossian believers. Epaphras had taken to heart Paul's admonition in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Epaphras then takes the work of prayer seriously. He says, struggling on your behalf. The Greek word for struggling is agonizomai. Can you hear the word agonizomai? Uh, You can hear agonizing in that word. And now that word can speak literally of athletic struggle, like a wrestling match or or, uh, running sprints. It can talk about military fighting or metaphorically of any difficult task. And so we see here that Epaphras does not pray just when it suits him. He considers it absolutely necessary to be in prayer for the churches in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. And Epaphras' example example in prayer tells us what he values in prayer. Look at what he prays for in verse 12. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, that word stand, that you may stand, stresses the idea of standing firm or holding one's ground. Uh, It's used that way in the armor of God passage in uh, Ephesians 6, 13 and 14, that you may stand. And Ephesians is the sister epistle to, to Colossians. So we could say that Epaphras fights in prayer so that the Colossian church can hold its ground, that they can stand, and that they can stand mature. Two attributes characterize their standing firm. One of them is mature. And the other one is fully assured. So let's talk about mature first. We first saw this word mature back in Colossians 1.28. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity is the result of consistently learning the Word of God and putting it into practice in the power of the Holy Spirit. And maturity leads to spiritual discernment. As Paul put it in Ephesians 4.14, we were talking about this in the the Sunday school class this morning about people being given gifts, and those gifts lead up to, these speaking gifts and serving gifts lead up to verse 14. It says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You see, mature discernment is exactly what the Colossians need in standing firm. You remember the false doctrine that came against them in chapter 2. They have this big onslaught of this uh, 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 man-centered, work-centered, arrogant religious... uh, observance, uh, people going on about visions that they probably didn't have, those, those sorts of things. So they really do need discernment. And so this is why Epaphras is saying, I'm praying that you'll be mature and uh, that you may stand uh, mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Remember how back in chapter 2 of Colossians we saw that uh, Paul had said, Don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't let them judge you. You see, I think Epaphras is thinking of this false doctrine that he knows about, that he has reported to Paul, and he has been praying that God would overcome that false doctrine by giving the Colossians this full assurance uh, the Greek word used here has to, be, has to do with being convinced or confident. And the sense of the word actually overlaps with maturity. So mature and fully assured, really overlapping, maybe interlocking ideas here. Epaphras' prayer then asks God to grow the Colossian church in their relationship with Jesus so that they'll have a settled confidence in God's power to guide them. Now, Epaphras' prayer is instructive in some important ways. You see, the content of his prayer is for the Colossians' maturity, 
spiritual discernment and confidence. And that request teaches us what ought to be important in our prayers for ourselves and for others, which is the condition of our souls. See, our, our closeness to God is the most important thing. Now, I dare say most people you ask on the street, um, if you were to say, is there anything I can pray for for you? Probably what they'll say is uh, they'll probably bring up whatever crisis they happen to be going through. And it's interesting. Sometimes people do sort of open up to you. They say, oh, yeah, my uh, uh, close family member has cancer or we're struggling with this or my finances are in disarray or something like that. And then it's a great opportunity for you to present the gospel. If you just ask somebody, what, if, is there anything I can pray for you? For you? Uh, <clears throat> now, people tend to think about prayer as something done in a moment of crisis, right? We want God to intervene in illness and calamity. And it's all right to ask God to act in these situations, to pray for healing, to pray for comfort and protection and deliverance. Yes, ask for all those things. But don't make that the only thing you ask for, and don't make prayer uh, only a response to your calamities in life. See, Epaphras teaches us to pray beyond those important but really only external concerns and to ask God to grant us discernment and full assurance of his will so that we won't be swayed by false doctrine. And it's maturity in Christ, the answer to Epaphras' prayer for the Colossians and for us will give us peace when we're walking in God's will and maturity will prepare us for those calamities and failed health. So we will glorify God when we experience suffering and opposition. The way these Colossians were, they're, they're going through all kinds of difficulty and suffering. And that's part and parcel of the, of the Christian life. Don't think that it isn't. So it glorifies God the most when people learn who God is and respond with joy and thanksgiving and call on God with prayers to know and trust Him more. Now, verse 14 conveys two other men's greetings to the Colossians, Luke and Demas. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Now, this is the only passage that tells us Luke is a doctor. He's the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which amount to more words in the New Testament than any other author in the New Testament. So I, I really find it interesting that here in Colossians we meet Mark and Luke. So we, we've basically gotten connections into huge swaths of the New Testament. See, Luke appears directly in the we sections of Acts in which Luke includes himself. Those are in chapter 16, uh, chapter 20, chapter 21, and chapter 27. So wherever you say, see him talking about we, this is Luke. And this is Luke on his travels with Paul. And he was Paul's faithful companion in Rome, as well as at the very end of Paul's life, as we read in, we can read in 2 Timothy. It may indeed have been Luke, since he was a literary man himself, who collected all of Paul's letters uh, and uh, arranged them for publication uh, so that they would make it to all the churches that Paul had planted. Now, the last man mentioned in this section is, is really a contrast to Luke. It's Demas. Now, his name appears again in Philemon 24. There's, there's only one chapter in Philemon, so you say Philemon 24, and you mean, well, there's 25 verses. You just go to that uh, verse on, on the postcard that Paul sent. So now, Demas is there just mentioned simply as a co-worker. Now, unfortunately, Demas appears again in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. I almost wish we hadn't heard these words about Demas. You know, if we only knew Demas in Colossians and Philemon, we'd think of him as a faithful servant of God. You might, we might even have St. Demas Day, I wonder. Uh, <clears throat> But Demas' departure happened because he is in love with this present world. And Demas' defection from the faith, like Judas' betrayal, is evidence he had no relationship with God in the first place. So it's not Christian service 
that uh, makes the difference. It's faith in Jesus Christ that makes the difference. The Apostle John writes of defectors from the faith like this. 1 John 2, 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. There's a sad truth that our experience of the Christian life will sometimes be met with desertion from those who we thought were on the side of the kingdom of God. Demas's love for this present world is a threat we all face. So now in verses 15 through 17, we come to greetings to Laodicea. Paul now moves to the relationship between the churches in Colossae and Laodicea. Colossians 4.15 says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, our passage probably means Nympha was the owner of the house. And for her home to be large enough to host meetings, she likely was a woman with some wealth or influence. Now, some people are often surprised to learn that there were many women who supported Jesus' ministry financially and with service. Uh, You can find that in Matthew 27 and Mark 15, Luke 2 and Luke 23, if you're interested. And the book of Acts is replete with examples of women who supported Paul's ministry too. Acts chapter 16 and 17 come to mind. Uh, Lydia is one of them. So Nympha played a crucial role in the life of the church at Laodicea. Now verse 16 says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So it's easy to see here that uh, the letter to the Colossians was to be carried over to Laodicea, not very far away, and read there. But what is this letter to Laodicea? Well, there is a document that we know of called the Epistle to the Laodiceans, but that's a medieval Latin forgery. It's definitely not one of Paul's letters. So if you see something called the letter to the, to the Laodiceans, it's probably, probably not this one that we're talking about. But mo- most scholars now say that the letter from Laodicea is lost to history. That's probably the, uh, the easiest position to take because you can just say, well, we just don't know. And maybe that's the case. Uh, but some scholars suggest that this letter is actually the letter we know as Ephesians. Now, what I see here is a matter of controversy. Now, it's not a huge controversy. I've never heard of a church splitting over the identity of the, uh, uh, the, uh, of the letter to Laodicea, but I, I don't know. With the things people split over, you might, be, you might be surprised. But So I very well could be wrong, so feel free to disagree with me here. No doctrine of the Christian faith depends on knowing what the letter from Laodicea is. But I think there's a strong possibility that Ephesians really is this letter from Laodicea. Now, let me say, first of all, that the names of the books themselves were added later. Uh, And and they're all really consistent. Once they're added, everyone just kind of goes, yeah, well, yeah, obviously. Uh, And so they're not part of the inspiration of the Spirit in producing them. Now, there's a close affinity between the books of Colossians and Ephesians, both in content and time of writing. And we've referred to Ephesians multiple times over the course of this study in, in Colossians. And uh, so, so I'm, you see, I'm, I'm building this case for this letter to Laodicea being Ephesians. So Colossians and Ephesians have this really tight connection with one another. Secondly, Tychicus is this messenger that appears in both of them. And if he carried both letters, um, I think that's pretty strong circumstantial evidence. And there are writers from the second century AD that tell us that some people in their day said what we now call Ephesians was the letter to Laodicea. Now, granted, I I can understand somebody might be creatively reading Colossians 4.16 and say, maybe it's that one, right? And... That, that is what I'm doing here too, but 
But these are, this, are, this is reports from the second century, I mean, really close to when, uh, when these letters were written. So if they're right, then you might ask, well, why is Ephesians, not called, why is Ephesians called Ephesians and why is it not called Laodiceans? You see, every letter of Paul includes the destination of the epistle within the text of the epistle, but not Ephesians. The words in in Ephesus are missing from the very best and earliest of our Greek handwritten copies. Ephesus likely came to be associated with the letter of Ephesians for at least two reasons. First of all, Ephesus is the capital of Roman Asia. And the church there became the most important church in the province. You remember, Ephesus is a few days' journey away, but it's on the other end. It's on the western end uh, of of Turkey. And Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis are about 120 miles inland from there. So uh, you can see the fact that Ephesus is an important church also in the book of Revelation among the seven churches of Asia. Revelation 2.1, it's the first church that gets a letter. And the order of the seven churches is more or less the the order in which a, a messenger would probably travel. So Ephesus is probably where churches may have gone to make their copies of Paul's letters. Now, secondly, Laodicea is the only one of the seven churches in Revelation that gets a consistently negative evaluation from Jesus. They're called lukewarm in Revelation 3.16. Now, in some people's minds, I think, Laodicea then would have carried some stigma for this designation. Now, not the the writers themselves. Paul wouldn't have. But as names were assigned to the books, it would be natural to choose Ephesus for its title for all these other reasons that we've just seen rather than Laodicea. Now, I must admit, there are many things about Paul's letters that we don't understand the way, the way Peter does. Uh, but I could also say there are many things about Paul's letters that we will never know until we meet Jesus face to face, especially externally. So, but I think that the idea that Ephesians is this letter from Laodicea makes the best sense of all the available data we have. <clears throat> so even if you're not convinced by that argument, you can just let that pass. Just push it aside on your plate. There. But Colossians 4.17 says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, Archippus is uh, one of the recipients of the letter to Philemon, as we'll see next week. Now, since Paul addresses Archippus along with Philemon, we can surmise that Archippus was a leader in the church at Colossae. And the fact that uh, he's given a ministry is, uh, is significant, too. We simply don't know what ministry it was that he was to fulfill. Now, but based on what Paul says to Timothy, uh, the ministry Archippus was given probably deals with preaching the word. Paul said the same thing to Timothy that he does to Archippus. 2 Timothy 4, 5, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And in 1 Timothy uh, 4, 14, Paul says, Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So you see, a ministry that he's to fulfill that's been given, you see all those ingredients there that are for Timothy's ministry. And Timothy's ministry was given to him, and it was a ministry of teaching. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul warns Timothy, or advises him, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So if I'm right about these ingredients that we're seeing in in Paul's correspondence with Timothy, then I think the same thing applies for Archippus. 
Paul reminds Archippus and the Colossians too, and he does it sort of publicly, that God gave Archippus this ministry. This is a gentle encouragement to take responsibility and apply diligence to the task of what God had given him to do. This encouragement meant Archippus was supposed to rely on God to fulfill what God had given him to do. And so uh, because it's so close to what Paul says to Timothy and in similar circumstances, it may have been that he was to teach the church while Epaphras was away doing work for Paul. We can learn from even just this little encouragement to Archippus that we're each given a ministry by God. Now, it may not be a formal role, but we all have a part in working together as a body to glorify God. So Paul, through Archippus, says to each of us, fulfill your ministry. So verse 18 brings us to uh, the last verse of the epistle. And he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now Paul takes the pen in hand and writes the closing greeting. The reason for this is to assure the Colossians the letter came from him. Paul often does this at the close of his letters to attest to the letter's authenticity. For instance, 1 Corinthians 16.21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Or Galatians 6.11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Or 2 Thessalonians 3.17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Now, even though we don't have uh, these signature passages in all of Paul's letters, the text that we have, it's very likely, given what we just read in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, Paul wrote some identifying mark on all his letters to authenticate them. Uh, Such a marking may have been included on the outside of the scroll, which would would account for why scribes, as they're copying these letters, did not also copy that that authentication seal. So uh, if if you could uh, take the modern analogy, it's it's like Paul signing the outside of the envelope. You know how you... You uh, have an important document that you put in an envelope and then you sign the, the, the edge of the, uh, where the envelope seals to uh, make sure that it's tamper evident, so to speak. I think this is probably what he's talking about in 2 Thessalonians 3.17. But uh, we have those signature passages in, in several of Paul's writings. Now, the authenticity of Paul's letters is crucial there were forgeries of his letters even in his own day. He told the church at Thessalonica this. 2 Thessalonians 2.2, he breaks into a sentence. He tells them, Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, there evidently were people forging letters that said, If Paul has announced it, Jesus has already come. You guys missed it. So the reason the sender had to be verified is that the letters of Paul, the letters that Paul sent were regarded as authoritative and binding. And this was another reason Paul sent trusted messengers who were known to the recipients. Uh, It it wasn't uncommon, by the way, for... uh, for uh, political operatives in the Roman Empire to intercept letter carriers uh, and make sure that the letters did not get to their intended uh, uh, destinations. Cicero complains about it constantly in his letters. Letter carriers could act as another witness to the integrity and source of the message. Remember, there's Jewish custom that comes out of the law in Deuteronomy that uh, by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every matter be, con- uh, be confirmed. And, and listen to what he says in the same letter in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. He says this, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the tra- traditions that you were taught by us, 
either by our spoken word, that's the authoritative presence of the apostle, or by our letter. You see how Paul invests his apostolic authority in the letter that he sends. And the early church was not gullible. Its leaders were careful to certify that the writings came from the apostles, the rightful authorized messengers Jesus had sent, before they even considered them as being from God. So I, I, I think, just as a side note on the canon, you can trust that what we've got in the New Testament is what Jesus authorized. So verse 18 again, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, Paul now says, remember my chains. Implicitly, he asks them to pray for his release. And their prayers for him were answered. Paul was released and conducted further ministry beyond Rome into Spain as he had planned. And it was some years later that Paul was imprisoned again in Rome and executed by the Roman government under the emperor Nero. Nero died in 68 AD, so 67, somewhere around there, maybe just anywhere before 68, I think, is about when Paul died. Now, interestingly enough, today is, according to the Voice of the Martyrs website, persecution.com, today is the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians. We remember all of our brothers and sisters who are driven from their homes, plundered, abused, beaten, and imprisoned for their testimony to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, remember my chains, you can hear the voice of Christians in our day and their prayers for release. Now, Paul's final words are a benediction. Grace be with you. These parting words are not simply a formality. They are a prayer that God's loving presence and power would pervade their lives. He is calling on God's character as a gracious God to bless the Colossians and the Laodiceans and the Hierapolis. Paul's greatest desire is to see people blessed and joyous in loving God and receiving His grace. This is what brings God the most glory. My final statements this morning are one-sentence calls to imitate the shining examples or avoid the one great pitfall of the people we have met and commended in this closing section of Colossians. But before I read them, You need to know that these are for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to bring them into relationship with God. Please accept God's gift of an eternal relationship with Him before you do anything else today. So here they are. Do not love the world the way Demas did. Encourage fellow believers like Tychicus and Onesimus did by walking with them through trials. Pray hard like Epaphras for discernment and maturity that our hearts would change to treasure God's glory. Despite failures, return to faithful ministry like Mark. And like the Colossians, graciously welcome back those who fail and repent. Forgive and restore your brothers and sisters like Paul. Endure hardship like Aristarchus in single-minded love of the glory of God. Open your home for the gospel ministry, like Nympha. And the last is this. Know that you, like Archippus, have a gift from God that God wants you to use in fulfilling His purpose. Let's pray. Father, we remember the chains of all those who now suffer for the cause of Jesus and the gospel. Please be merciful and release each one to continued ministry, and to glorify you. And where, there, where that is not your will, give them steadfastness and courage not to waver in their witness. Exalt your Son even in their deaths. We know that your justice will not overlook these dear saints' suffering. May their testimony lead to repentance on the part of their tormentors and murderers. But we thank you 
our Lord for the faithful example of service in Colossians and the example of encouragement to faithfulness we find here. We pray, as Epaphras did, for our own steadfastness and maturity and full confidence in Jesus to make known your will. May our steadfastness not waver as we trust in your provision and power. Keep us from loving the world. Thank you for all the faithfulness you have shown us in the faithful service others have undertaken for us. May all of us follow your guidance so that each of us may support each other in the work you have given us to do by your grace. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.